Chapter 12, Part 1 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 12, Part 1 Discipline and Life of the Church. It has already been observed that the precepts of Christian morality tended to become a code of positive law, having its own interpreters in the rulers of the church. This tendency becomes more prominent in the fourth and following centuries. Men came to look more and more to the authority of the church to determine both the special acts and the general conduct which were to be required of Christians. Hence there arose a more systematic treatment of moral questions and a more regular method of dealing with sin and disorder. In the early part of the period of which we are treating, each province had its own code and customs, but local peculiarities were gradually eliminated, and the whole church within the empire came to have one law. A kind of public opinion was formed on the matter before any actual codification took place. It was generally agreed that the canons of ecumenical synods and certain imperial decrees accepted by the church were of universal obligation. But there were some synods, of too much importance to be regarded as simply provincial, and yet scarcely universal, about the canons of which there was doubt. Several of these, in course of time, came to be recognized as everywhere valid. The codes of Theodosius and of Justinian contained many provisions relating to matters ecclesiastical, and it was perhaps the example of the imperial codification which induced Joannes Scholasticus, originally a lawyer, afterwards Patriarch of Constantinople, about the year 570 to arrange systematically the whole ecclesiastical law of the Eastern Church. This became the standard book of reference and manual of instruction for Oriental students. He also added to his collection of canons the imperial laws relating to the several matters treated of in the canons. This work, called the Nomocanon, was composed apparently within the year after Justinian's death. A later hand added four laws of Heraclius relating to matters ecclesiastical. The Roman Church at the beginning of the 5th century recognized only the canons of Nicaea, under which name, however, those of Sardica were included, as of universal obligation. Others, said Innocent I, the Church does not accept. But in the latter half of the same century, we find extant a Latin translation of a Greek collection of canons. The imperfection and obscurity of this translation, however, induced Dionysus Exiguus, a Scythian monk who understood both Greek and Latin, to undertake a new edition, which probably appeared in the time of Pope Symmachus, between the years 498 and 514. The first part of this collection contains a careful translation of those canons which were generally acknowledged by the Greeks, together with the Latin canons of Sardica, and the code which was sanctioned by a council at Carthage in the year 419 for the use of the African church. The second part contains the decretals of the popes, so far as they could then be discovered in Rome, from Sericius, who became pope in 385, to Anastasius, who died in 497. These decretals are for the most part letters giving opinions on cases submitted by distant authorities. The Code of Dionysus came to be received in Rome and in the West, generally as having the authority of law, and was completed by the addition from time to time of later documents. 
A collection of canons for the use of the Spanish church was made probably in the first half of the 7th century by Isidore of Seville. This contains in its first division, together with the greater part of the current Greek church law, certain canons of Spanish and of Galician councils. In the second division, the decretals of the Dionysian Code, with the addition of certain letters of the popes relating to Spanish and Galician affairs, the, quote, breviarium, unquote, drawn up by Fulgentius Ferrandus, a deacon of Carthage, about the year 547, independently of the Dionysian Code, seems to have attained less vogue. Another source of church law was the penitential system, the beginnings of which we have already seen. They who sinned against the law of God were at once punished and purified by passing through a course of humiliation and mortification before they could be readmitted to the full privileges of the faithful. This course was called by the general name of penitence, or penance, and those who were undergoing it were penitents. This system brought with it the necessity of instruction in the application of appropriate remedies, for penalties might vary from a short period of fasting or abstinence to a sentence which hardly permitted the offender to receive the sacrament on his deathbed. Many directions on these matters are given in the canons of councils, but instructions were also issued from time to time by distinguished ecclesiastics with a view of securing uniformity in the administration of penitential discipline. Such documents, for instance, as the epistles of St. Basil and his brother Gregory of Nyssa, on the subject of penitence, were held in such respect as to have almost the force of law. That of St. Gregory is rather a treatise on what we may call the psychology of sin than an attempt to assign special penalties to special sins, while those of Basil, dealing mainly with the sins of idolatry, murder, and fornication, allot to each form of sin its appropriate punishment. The latter had great influence in the East, and received synodical sanction at the Trollan Council in 692. In the West, the papal decretals sometimes deal, though not systematically, with sins for which penitence is prescribed. Fragments still exist of British and Irish penitentials of great antiquity, mainly devoted to the enforcement of purity of life and the discharge of Christian duty, and to the extirpation of the ferocious and licentious passions of the old heathen life. Sixteen canons are extant of the book of St. David of Menevia, now called from him St. David's, and similar canons of councils held under the same bishop, which imply a rude and impure state of life among those for whom they were intended. Another ancient penitential, bearing the name of Vinaeus or Finian, and probably contemporary, or nearly so, with St. David's, enumerates the principal sins of clergy and laity, with their appropriate penalties. Of about the same date is Prefatio Gilde de Penitentia, which gives a more detailed account of the several penances than the other early books. Among the earliest existing penitentials are those of Ireland, some possibly drawn up by, or under the influence of, St. Patrick himself. In these appears the system of compounding for sins by the surrender of money or other worldly goods, which was afterwards conspicuous both in the ecclesiastical and the civil codes of the northern nations of Europe. The numerous and interesting English penitentials do not fall within the chronological limits of this work. In the 4th and 5th centuries a great change crept over the whole penitential system. The old rule, that an excommunicated person could only once in his lifetime be readmitted to the church, after confession and penance, fell into disuse. The same person was more than once admitted to the ranks of penitence and to the hope of restoration. It was one of the charges made against Chrysostom at the Synod of the Oak, 
that he said, quote, If thou sinnest again, again repent. As often as thou sinnest, come to me, and I will heal thee. Unquote. In the days immediately following the Decian persecution, when large numbers of the lapsed flocked to obtain absolution from the church, so that their public confessions became a scandal, a discreet presbyter was chosen to decide, after private hearing, what penance the offenders should undergo before admission to communion. Such a penitentiary presbyter was generally appointed in the several churches until Nectarius, Patriarch of Constantinople in 391, abrogated the office in his own church, in consequence of a scandal which had arisen, and many other bishops followed his example. Socrates seems to imply that after this it was left to each man's conscience to decide whether he was worthy to approach the mysteries. In Rome, Pope Simplicius appointed a penitentiary in the latter part of the 5th century. This private confession was the natural result of the extension of Christianity to society in general. Sins which might be confessed to a small assembly of friends bound together by the most intimate union of thought and feeling, could hardly be uttered before a large congregation of comparatively indifferent persons. Moreover, some of the sins which excluded the sinner from communion were also crimes which might bring him under the cognizance of the law of the land, and some sins, as adultery, involved others besides the person confessing. Augustine contemplates the daily prayer as sufficient atonement for the little sins which we inevitably commit in daily life, while the more deadly sins, which separate men from the body of Christ, require public and formal penance. Those more deadly sins are those against the majesty of God himself, as blasphemy, idolatry, heresy, and sorcery, or actual offenses against one's neighbor, as murder, adultery, theft, and perjury, and openly expressed hatred. No layman who had done penance could ever be admitted to the ranks of the clergy, and no cleric could be admitted to penance without previous deposition from his office. The general principle which Augustine laid down, that secret sins might be confessed secretly, while open sins must be confessed openly, was probably largely adopted by bishops in their penitential discipline. Leo the Great, however, condemned in vigorous language the conduct of those bishops who compelled penitents to read aloud in the church a complete list of their sins, holding that it was sufficient for the relief of the conscience if men confessed their sin to the priests alone, and that this course was also desirable for the avoiding of scandal. From this time, probably, public confession of sin became rare. Almsgiving, or bequests to the church, also came to be recognized as a means of atoning for sin. Quote, if thou hast money, unquote, says St. Ambrose, quote, buy off thy sin. The Lord is not for sale, venalis, but thou thyself art for sale. Buy thyself off by thy works. Buy thyself off by thy money. Vile is money, but precious is mercy. Unquote. Salvian insists that the only thing which a man can do on his deathbed for the good of his soul is to leave all his goods to the church but the offering must be accompanied by real contrition of heart in order to be efficacious. Men like St. Augustine warned their flocks against leaving money to the church in a fit of anger against their natural heirs, but still the practice grew of making the church the legatee of at least a portion of a man's worldly goods. And not only did the dying leave their goods to the church, offerings were also made for the departed. Quote, it cannot be denied, unquote, says St. Augustine, Quote, that the souls of the departed are comforted by the piety of their surviving friends when the mediatorial sacrifice is offered for them and alms are given on their behalf in the church. 
but these things only profit those who so live as to deserve to be benefited by them. Unquote. As few would believe that their friends had lived so ill as to receive no benefit from their offerings, or so well as not to require them, the effect of this principle was that offerings were made for almost all the departed. The Christian Church brought comfort to an age in the throes of dissolution. Before a generation which had fallen into moral laxity, it held up a standard of nobler and purer life. It handed on to the new world which arose on the ruins of the Western Empire, the torch of truth which it had received from above. It diffused through society a more tender feeling for the weak and suffering, and so in the end introduced a more humane spirit into general legislation and popular customs. The gladiatorial shows which had delighted the Romans were forbidden indeed by Constantine, but they were not really put down until the noble self-sacrifice of the monk Telemachus produced so deep an impression that the rescript against the practice, which Honorius issued immediately afterwards, really brought it to an end. Attempts were made to restrain scenical representations within the bounds of decency and good order. The wretched lot of slaves and captives was mitigated. The almost unlimited power which the old Roman law gave to a father over his children was restricted. Above all, the condition of women was changed, and the same chastity was looked for in men which had once been expected only from women. The laws which inflicted disabilities on the unmarried were repealed, and celibates placed on an equality with the married while difficulties were placed in the way of second marriages. With regard to divorce, a discrepancy arose between the law of the empire and the law of the church, which had never recognized any ground for divorce except adultery. The great freedom of separation which prevailed in pagan times was indeed restrained, but the civil law permitted many divorces which the church did not sanction, and from this permission scandals arose. Quote, Hear ye now, unquote, cries a preacher at the end of the fourth century, Quote, ye that change your wives as readily as your cloaks, ye that so often and so easily build bridal chambers, ye that on a small provocation write a bill of divorcement, ye that leave many widows while ye still live, be ye fully assured that marriage is dissolved only by death and by adultery. Unquote. Jerome also bewails the difference of the laws. Quote, the laws of Caesar, unquote, he says, quote, differ from those of Christ. Pepinian, the great jurist, lays down one thing, Paul a different thing. Unquote. The duty of beneficence, whether to ascetics or to others who were in need, came into prominence in the church and produced great results. The church, become rich through the privileges bestowed upon it, was the principal protector of the poor and helpless in the needful time of trouble. The bishops had generally the chief control of ecclesiastical funds, and they were rarely found wanting in their due administration. In large cities, the lists of those who were supported or succored by the alms of churchmen often included some thousands of names. Rome was divided, for the purpose of poor relief, into seven regions, each under the care of a deacon, and in each region a special edifice was built for his use in distributing relief. When St. Chrysostom was at Antioch, three thousand names were on the list of those who depended on the church for daily bread, and in Constantinople the same excellent prelate fed seven thousand. Special institutions were developed for the care of the stranger, the sick, the helpless of every kind. The great hospital which St. Basil founded at Caesarea was no doubt a model for many others. Similar hospitals were soon erected in many cities both of the East and the West. The well-known friends of Jerome, Fabiola, and Pamachius founded hospitals in Rome and in neighboring Portus. 
Paulinus established one in Nola. Such institutions were maintained either from the common funds of the church or from special donations of land and money. The income of the church in its earlier and simpler ages was derived from the offerings of the faithful, but when, under the privilege granted by Christian emperors, the church itself became possessed of considerable property, these oblations became relatively of less importance. Still, rich offerings were made, especially on saints' days and other high festivals, which were devoted partly to the maintenance of the clergy, partly to the succor of the poor. The bishops, who disposed of great riches, generally lived very simply, though there were no doubt some who justified the sneer of Ammianus Marcellinus, that it was no wonder that men fought for the possession of the see of Rome, seeing the wealth and splendor which they enjoyed who attained it. But while there was in the church no lack of Christian virtues, evils also appeared which were perhaps inseparable from a time of transition. When Constantine gave his favor to the church, a multitude pressed into it who were still pagan at heart, taking with them many of the vices and superstitions of heathenism. Constantine seems to have contemplated this bringing over of the common herd from impure motives as one end of his liberality to the church. Few, he said, were influenced by a real love of truth. He could draw men to the doctrine of salvation more readily by abundant largesse than by preaching. He bestowed honors and privileges upon cities which accepted Christianity. Christian writers did not deny that many entered the church who were Christian only in name. Eusebius tells us that he had himself observed the injury done by the flocking in of greedy and worthless men who lowered the standard of social life, and by the dissimulation of those who slunk into the church with a mere outward show of Christianity. Augustine declares that few sought Jesus for Jesus' sake, most sought their own ends in their profession of the faith. When Christians said these things, it is not wonderful if a pagan declared that many of those who filled the churches were no more Christians than a player king is a king. It was necessary to forbid even men in holy orders to use art magic or incantations, to cast horoscopes or to practice astrology, to make phylacteries or amulets, and to warn all persons against practicing secret idolatry and attending heathen festivals. Nor was the church altogether free from superstitions of Jewish origin. And the clergy did not in all cases give to the laity an example of the highest Christian life. When office in the church no longer brought with it trouble and danger, but honor and power, it was eagerly sought for, and that sometimes by unworthy means. Gregory of Nazianzus laments, and Jerome declaims, against the eager pressing of ambitious and self-seeking men into places of honor in the church. The luxury, the flattery, the legacy hunting, the trading of some unworthy members of the clergy. We must, of course, bear in mind that the language of Gregory is that of a sensitive man, weary of the strife of tongues and the wiles of intrigue, while Jerome's is that of a bitter and unsparing satirist, himself devoted to the ascetic life. But neither one nor the other is likely to have spoken utterly without warrant. And if confirmation of their words be required, it is unfortunately to be found in a law of the Emperor Leo of the year 469, which forbids men to gain holy orders by bribery, and rebukes the avarice which hung as a cloud over the altar. Far from seeking the sacred office, a man should not accept it unless compelled. We have here the germ of nolo episcopari. Two causes, it is to be feared, tended to demoralize the clergy. One was the excessive prevalence of dogmatic disputes, which sometimes withdrew men's thoughts from the necessity of a holy life. It is easier, and perhaps more profitable, to be a partisan than a saint. The other was, for the East, the imperial court at Constantinople. When the emperor perpetually interfered in affairs of dogma, 
and it was of the last importance to gain his ear, bishops and priests jostled with courtiers and lackeys in the anterooms of the palace, and no doubt lost in spirituality what they gained in power. End of chapter 12, part 1